electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast in a snap, one warning from a relatively small social media company sparking a sum of all fears scenario rippling across corporate America. Why Snap's macro worries have the markets concerned about a lot more than just online advertising. Plus, from the bears to one big bull, Evercore ISI's Julian Emanuel will be here. And he's sticking to his gun, saying the S&P will finish the year at 4,800. That is a jump of nearly 25% from where we stand today. How he says we will get there. And later, Nordstrom surging after the bell, strong earnings driven by shoppers paying full price for suits, ties, and stuff these guys don't seem to wear too often. <laughs> we'll really? dig into the numbers and guidance straight ahead. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, I nodded up Tim Seymour. Bono and Ice and Nathan and Guy Adami, they were ties. And we start off with a little social media company that put a nearly half-trillion-dollar dent in the market. Snapshare is tumbling 43% today for its worst day since going public. But the impact was felt way beyond social media. The concerns Snap raised over everything from ad targeting to the jobs market to the war in Ukraine sent shares of big tech tumbling. In all, the S&P wiped out nearly $400 billion in market cap just today. So how could Snap, with essentially one product, spark such a strong reaction? And is it a canary in the coal mine guy? Well, that's what Rick Heitzman seemed to indicate. And he obviously you just heard him on the overtime. He likes more names. He likes names other than uh, Facebook. He likes Google here. Performance advertising makes sense. I'll say this. Is it a canary in the coal mine? Absolutely. And I think Snap is not just Snap specific. And the fact that now you're talking about companies uh, hiring freezes, laying people off, cutting CapEx. I mean, that goes across a spectrum of sectors. And I think it's worrisome. I'll say this about Snap quickly. Even if they don't make the $7 billion in revenue they're expected to do next year, say it's five, right now at current levels, it's trading about four times revenue, which I don't think is ridiculous. And I think it's a valuable asset traded 10 times normal volume today, 280 million shares, reeks of capitulation to me. It's one thing to say Pinterest was down, you know, Pubmatic was down, all these sort of um, ad related names were down. But when you talk about Apple, being down as much as 3% at one point in the session, finishing the day down by just about 2%, Dan. I mean, these are concerns that really strike the nerve of Wall Street right now. These are the things that, that we're all worried about, we, that we haven't seen the full impact of rising rates. We haven't seen the full impact of supply chain issues, et cetera. Yeah, and we've been talking about Apple. I mean, when you think about how they rely on a Chinese consumer, but they also rely on the supply chain and the manufacturing that exists in China, this is a really important time for them because sooner or later, they're going to have to go beyond them saying that we are supply constrained, right? They may have to say we have a demand problem in China. That might be relative to some sort of geopolitical situation and we might see a hit to their margins. Who knows? I mean, I guess at this point I don't disagree with Guy whatsoever, a canary in the coal mine. I think there's lots of different ways to extrapolate it. We hit it on the desk last night as the news was coming out. I'll just say this. Go back just a few weeks in mid-April when Netflix surprised. The stock was down 35%. They were telling you they're having a sub-problem. They were telling you they were having a demand problem. What are they doing? They want to go to advertising. And what did Snap just tell us right now? 
that advertising is a tough digital model at the moment, given what they're seeing as far as the consumer. So to me, I do think we are not closer to the end of this, people. I mean, it's just saying this is going to be something that roils, I think, lots of different parts of the consumer market over the next few months. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that we seem to be falling on the same concerns over and over again. And they're coming from different places, like a Walmart and then a Target and now with Snap. And yet it's the same basic concern that we continue to decline on. Well, Mel, it's growth over inflation. Right. And that, that's the concern that's moved to the front uh, of, of the, the, the dashboard here. And if you look at Treasury yields and what happened to the curb day, by the way, it steepened, uh, which actually means you saw more, more rallying from the short end, uh, where the view is that the Fed can move less. If you look at the, the Fed fund futures, we've taken off about 15 bips in the last three or four days. I, 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 look, the market is... Is, makes the call. The market's the one that we listen to, um, and the market said what it said today. But Snap is not Facebook. Um, Snap is not Apple. I mean, Snap, Snap is a company that going into the crisis was having a lot of problems, still had a lot of prove-it-to-me story. This is a company that was a $3 stock in 2019. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that, that Snap is the reason why we should all be worried about growth. I'm going to worry about housing starts that were down 15%. I'm going to worry about dynamics that we're seeing from other companies. But this was a day where we actually already got the green shoots from the post-recession round. And a lot of consumer stocks. I mean, look, Walmart was higher. Uh, consumer brands were higher. Certainly defensive consumer staple stocks were higher. And I know that's not a reason to get excited. Those are defensive moves. But to say that, you know, this is a time to totally hunker down, um, I think there's opportunities. I've actually added to Walmart in the last couple of days. And I, I do think that Snap, um, yes, has a major impact. I understand the move on Facebook. Um, but I, I, I do think we have to be careful about saying Snap is, is a, an indictment of the entire growth story. Okay, so I can understand the argument in terms of not extrapolating extrapolating snap to the overall market, the, the overall macro trends or consumer trends. I think Tim makes a good point. I totally understand that. What I do think you can make a bit of a read through to is the surprise of the consumer still to be there. It was only a month ago that <clears throat> snap came out, kind of knocked the cover off the ball, guided forward. And then it's a month later where they're guiding down and telling us that they're now seeing, I guess, this quote unquote unforeseen softer demand. I think that it's one of two things. Either companies are reluctant to admit that there is some soft there, or this volatility or surprises isn't just uh, endemic to snap. And that is where I think it probably has implications for the overall market. Well, I mean, earnings season closed right at the end of March for most companies. And here we are. We've got a couple months where we don't really have a read yet. And so that they're the first right, read. That's that's the fear that in between the last print and the guy that was given at the end of the second quarter, at the end of the first quarter, excuse me. And now things have changned. And I think that is what right Dan, I mean, that, yeah, that was time. what Snap encapsulated. Hey, hey, listen, on this set last week, uh, Brian Cornell, CEO of Target, actually said the same thing about mm-hmm. consumer behavior in such a short period of time. So if we start seeing this rack up, we had this conversation, I think, a couple days ago on the desk. It's like, well, most companies keep telling you that demand's there. The consumer's fine. We were talking about Jamie Dimon talking about consumer credit and we, you know, yesterday. But that is the case until it's not. And I think that you have to think about this as a bit of a mosaic. This is not a buy the dip economy, and it's not a buy-the-dip market right now. We're in a different market. And if you go back two years, okay, when we were in the black hole of the pandemic, what did it take? It took trillions of dollars of monetary and fiscal stimulus to get us to V-reversal. This is not going to V-reverse. As it relates to Snap, I bought a little bit today, and I'll tell you why. The last time it was trading at 1279, where it closed today, was April of 2020. At that point, they closed the year with two and a half 
billion dollars in sales. They had like a low 50s gross margin. They were still unprofitable on a gas ba- uh, gap basis. Here we are two years later, expected to have over $5 billion, $7.5 billion in sales next year. Uh, margins are supposed to be up 10 points, okay, from that period or whatever. So if you're telling me that the stock was overdone back then in the throes of that, now it got up to $80. I believe in the next five years, in the next bull run, a stock like Snap will once again have a $100 billion market cap. At some but, point. but what, so what you're what saying, saying is there, there are stocks to buy here. And that, that's the only thing I want to push back on because I, I, I don't want to die on the hill of, hey, this, this, the market's fine, the economy's fine, because I don't believe either. Uh, I do believe that banks have held on to their gains. I do believe that consumer staples companies, we're going to talk about Nordstrom's, and we've talked about the difference in the consumer segments. I mean, luxury consumer, right now, people are spending on going up. People want to have 15 pairs of sneakers in, in their closet. I know Dan does. So you have a case here where uh, I just think there are places where you can invest. Energy. You know, we're, you know I know energy is 4.9% of the S&P, but by the way, that was 2.9% of the S&P at the end of the year. And I talked about how the increase in the weighting in the energy sector is something you can get behind. So I think that that's the message today, is that we heard awful news in real time out of Snap, but there are companies that haven't seen that same segment go away. I guess the question here, I mean, a lot of analysts came out in talking about Snap and talking about the related companies, that there has been a reset effectively. A lot of analysts had cut um, estimates for revenue growth specifically for 2022 and 2023 in the space. Is this reset, though, enough, Guy, or do we not have a handle on how much it should, in fact, be reset? I mean, if SNAP doesn't necessarily have a handle, should the analysts have a handle? We are talking about earnings estimates having to come down. That's your, and listen, Dan brought up Target. I mean, if you think about it, clearly the market doesn't have a handle when a company the size of Target can move 25, 30% in a day, Walmart 15%. You know, we've seen these moves across the spectrum of names. I mean, that means the market by definition doesn't have a handle. So there's no reason to think that we should now. The real question comes down to at what point do you feel like we've capitulated? And I would say, and I'm not suggesting I'm right, it's just sort of my sense. The only panic I have seen over the last couple months have been to the upside in some of these days. And today, to a certain extent, in the, uh, in the Dow, not really, but you've seen these ridiculous upside moves that have been met by sellers. The selling, to me, has been orderly. When that flips, that's when we know it's close. It hasn't happened yet. Um, this just coming out from the Wall Street Journal here, Lyft. To slow hiring and slash some departments' budgets, people familiar with plans say to the Wall Street Journal. Um, We've been talking about this in technology, how companies are going to start reexamining. We heard that from Snap yesterday. But again, if you extrapolate and think in this kind of environment, what do companies do? They hunker down, right? They want to prepare for the worst, particularly when your stock price has been decimated. What do you do? Um, and, and that then has a ripple effect, Bonowin, on the consumer, of course. That, that gets to the core of it. Uh, it does. I mean, it, it leads to lower employment, ultimately. And you're not, it's not just Uber. It's not just Snap. It's Netflix. And you're seeing it across the board. Now, I'm going to bring this kind of full circle and, and, and circle back to what Tim said. There are companies that you can buy. And to your point, Tim, I think you're spot on. Now, the question is the time horizon for, uh, under which you're willing to deploy capital and, and when you're looking for that entry point. A name like Facebook, a name like Apple, both of which have, have come, come under a barrage of downward selling pressure, when you look at their cash balances and you talked about shoring things up, those companies 
companies are very symbolic of companies that have shored things up. So when you do decide to deploy capital, and I'm not encouraging one to catch a falling knife, but those are the type of balance sheets that you're going to look for in terms of uh, you know establishing a long position. Yeah, I wanted to mention this about the unemployment, um, which is at 3.6%, the last reading, and that's very near the pre-pandemic lows of 3.5%, which themselves were 40-year lows, right? And this was one of the pillars of that strong economy thesis that we had coming out of the pandemic. Well, here's the deal. I think it's really clear. That's going up, right? So we have the negative wealth effect from the stock market that's down, you know, from 20 to 30% as far as the NASDAQ's concerned. And then what have we seen, Tim, what you just mentioned about that housing data? Housing's turning. The 30-year mortgage just doubled in the last few months. So you put all that together here, and you have the case with rates, with the Fed continuing to raise 50 in June, 50. And we know that the lag between what the Fed is doing as far as raising rates is, what, three, six, nine months or so. We have a slowing economy. And you and I were talking about this last end of the desk. There is a very strong likelihood now that the U.S. is going to be in a recession at some part of 2022, and Europe is very likely to be in there. And and for the purposes of of the Fast Money split screen, I I want to say something to at least oppose what you're saying, because I do think there's a healthy debate about all kinds of things we're talking about. I can tell you that I actually think Snap probably did a horrible job of assessing and forecasting at the end of their first quarter numbers. Why do we think their numbers were so drastically different after one month? We're talking about Snap here. I'm not talking about a, a very mature company. So I think there's a lot of reasons why you can say reactions like today might be overdone. You went and you bought Snap. And, and I think that there are opportunities to, to, first of all, to be trading through a lot of this. I actually believe uh, employment's going to get a lot worse. I think the consumer is going to get smacked over, you know, the combination of their spending power is eroding by the second. And again, lower uh, income and earning segments, I think, are going to bear the worst. But right now, luxury is alive and well. And, and I think we're seeing that in the numbers. Our next guest says a weaker environment for ad spending could have even bigger implications in the VC world. Let's bring in Joe Marchese, general partner at Human Ventures. Joe, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I, I would imagine if you're a private company and you're watching what what is happening in the public markets to similar companies and, and those market caps are just getting halved, um, that you're girding for the worst. So what are we what are we actually seeing out there in terms of a slowdown in, in spending, a slowdown in hiring, et cetera. Yeah, I, I do think the, the first slowdown in spending you see uh, in VC-backed companies are ones that were spending for growth rather than spending for profit. I know I, I hear a lot of people talking about how Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Snapchat are performance advertising companies, but there's different types of performance. There's performance for sales, which drives revenue, and there's performance for clicks or downloads or installs of apps. And that's been you know, being funded by a lot of VC and growth capital. Ironically, as those things go down, it gets cheaper to buy sales and revenue. So I think you'll see some room on that side. Yeah. Hey, Joe, what would you say would be like the the most immediate knock on effect? Let's just say the snap is the beginning of a trend for the balance of this year. What are some other areas that you would expect to be weak in this kind of VC backed tech ecosystem? Well, so first, I'd caution saying whether Snap is a is a is a great indicator for the whole sector. I think that you know Twitter has very different advertising makeup. It's more brand advertisers, more akin to what you'd see on television during the commercial breaks of a CNBC or on broadcast. Whereas Facebook, Google, Amazon are more direct response marketers, small businesses, SMBs, and those show up in the market first and VC backed companies. Snap is really interesting because it's kind of in between the two. It has more brand advertisers than Facebook and Google and Amazon, but it has has more direct response than television. So, so I'd caution that. I'd also say that the last time uh, Snap 
uh, underperformed and then Meta underperformed immediately after them. Snap came right back with a big beat. And I think that their kind of fundamentals are the same. They're focused more on being a utility than a media company. Um, but, but on the venture side, I would look at things that were focused on buying growth in advertising versus kind of building fundamental businesses that sell products to consumers. I, I mean, I know we've all seen one of the biggest spenders in the entire market is crypto. And I think you will see a pullback in that spending. Joe, what happens to the so-called unicorns, the, the, you know, the, the big companies that are that are private now that were expected to go public in this market environment? And what happens to those valuations? I, I think you're going to see a lot weight. I, I think you the ones who are smart and well capitalized um, that were marking to public valuations will say now is not the time to go public. I don't not to be marked against that. Um, and you'll see the ones that are strongest will actually outperform because their, their competition will go away. Um, but they will slow down on the advertising side of things, which, which then does, um, kind of open up the market. But the thing I'd say for the audience, like cu- coming from my old world, cause there's a lot of other public companies in the advertising sector, the big ad agencies, the, the public media companies, the VC advertising spend is such a small portion. Like what makes up Facebook's advertising spend? So little of it is the Procter & Gamble's, Unilever's, the automotive companies that we know. And I think that's far from a slowdown. The, the television upfronts are going on right now. And, and I think that's still showing pretty strong. Joe, thank you. Joe Marchese. Meantime, we've got to get to breaking news on the deadly shooting at a Texas elementary school. Shepard Smith has got the details. Shep. Yeah, the details are coming in. 15, uh, 15 people total, we're now told, are dead. Uh, most of them students in that school. In addition, uh, one teacher from Uvalde, Texas, a small town about 80 miles west of San Antonio and about 60 miles east of the Mexican border there. A school of 600 students for kids age second to fourth grade. Uh, the shooter was in custody, we were told, at one o'clock uh, local time, two o'clock Eastern. But now we're told that 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 that's the gunman, an 18 year old, is dead. Police are holding a giving a statement now. Let's listen in the media uh, soon. At approximately 11.32 a.m. this morning, there was a mass casualty incident at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. School has children that are in second, third, and fourth grade. Uh, I can confirm right now that we have several injuries, uh, adults and students, and we do have some deaths. Uh, The suspect is deceased at this point. Uh, DPS is assisting with the investigation. Um, And at this point, the investigation is leading uh, to tell us that the the suspect uh, did act alone uh, during this hyenas crime. Uh, Families are being notified and we are providing services to them uh, as the district uh, should. Uh, as far as the rest of the district is concerned, safety measures were taken to make sure that we had a safe release for the rest of the district uh, for the, for throughout our city of Uvalde. And we uh, had numerous law enforcement officers and agencies that assisted with the safety release for those students. Uh, we do want to keep all our families in their prayers. I hope you do as well. And we also want to respect the privacy of the family. Uh, it is still being worked on. And again, we'll notify the parents and the families as soon as we have some news for them. Thank you so much. A statement only from police, but we've gotten we a, greatly appreciate your understanding a lot more information from the Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who informed us that 14 children were killed and one adult, a teacher, killed as well. In addition, two people were taken about 80 miles away to San Antonio to a to a level one trauma center where a 66 year old woman is now listed in critical condition and a 10 year old girl also critical. 
We've been able to learn a little bit about what's happened so far. This is the reporting of, of uh, NBC News and the investigative team and led by Tom Winter. The suspect is an 18-year-old from Uvalde, Texas. His name is Salvador Ramos. The Texas governor, Abbott, said he noted local reports that this man shot his grandmother and then proceeded to this elementary school. NBC News cannot independently confirm that. I'm quoting the governor on that matter. Uh, the shooter, again, is dead and believed to have been shot by police. And this is an area where uh, some of the information doesn't fit together perfectly. We're, we're confident of that matter. But there are also reports that there was a chase of some sort with this 18-year-old. We'll wait for further details on that. Governor Abbott says uh, two officers were struck by rounds uh, during this confrontation with the 18-year-old. We don't know the extent of their injuries except to say that they are not life-threatening at all and the governor says are not believed to be seriously injured. Uh, Texas Department of Public Safety is on scene as are members of the Border Patrol. I mentioned it's just 60 miles or so east of the of the uh, Mexican border there, as well as Uvalde police and county police on scene. University Health in San Antonio has received just those two patients, and all the other kids in this school have been taken to a, a local civic center there in Uvalde, Texas, where parents are allowed to come and pick them up. The notification process, we're told, is still underway. We're waiting to find out exactly what the motive might have been, if there was anything that led up to all of this. Why in the world an 18-year-old man would go to this school uh, and murder so many innocent children? Uh, we'll have all the details tonight on the news, 7 Eastern, as they come to us. Our correspondents are en route. We expect to have a live presence on scene. Further info from police as it comes in. For now, back to you. All right. Thank you, Shepard Smith, with heartbreaking news here. Fast Money will be right back. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Toll Brothers, the home builder popping after reporting a beat on the top and bottom lines. Let's get to senior real estate correspondent Diana Olick to break down the, the report. Uh, Diana. Um, I think this is all about Toll's price point, Melissa. It really had to do with this being the high-end home builder. You're talking about an average home price of $900,000. So the buyer's not really being affected as much by those rising interest rates, many of them perhaps not mortgage-dependent really interesting in the report that they kept to their guidance of 20% revenue growth um, for Doug Yearly, the CEO of Toll Brothers, said that while demand is still solid over the past month, it has moderated from the unprecedented pace of the past two years as buyers adapt to higher mortgage rates and other macroeconomic conditions. 
And I do think it's those other conditions, the stock market, inflation, the Fed raising interest rates that are hitting these higher end buyers. And again, it's seeing this very abrupt turn in May because we didn't really see the drop back in March and April. We saw home builder sentiment falling a couple of points each month. But again, we didn't see the big drop until May. All right, Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Again, we hear about the change in May, Guy, the change in May. You can hear that from a lot of people. But I'll say this about Toll Brothers, and Tim said this earlier, as did Bonowin. I mean, there are things you can buy for trades here, and I think Toll Brothers might actually be one of them. Bear with me for a second. I mean, backlog's up 35% year over year. That's very good. Huge EPS beat. Doesn't really, valuation doesn't matter necessarily with home builders, but I'll make a valuation case as well. And this move down to 44.5, which we saw today, is a 50% retracement of the March 2020 low and the recent all-time high we saw in December, January. So for a trade, I think Toll Brothers is actually okay here to Tim and Bonowin's earlier point about being able to buy things in this environment. Yeah, I think I make some good points. I mean, I think uh, there is risk that the, the homebuilder subsector overall has been somewhat of a value trap. There's been a lot of discussion around the fact that they are amongst the lowest multiples, you know, of publicly traded companies. With that said, I think I spot on in terms of, you know, when we were in the throes of the pandemic, we talked about a V-shaped recovery versus a K-shaped recovery. And I think this is is emblematic of that K-shaped recovery. It's like, you know, as I said, mid-850s to $900,000 price point in terms of uh, median or mean home sale. I think these are the type of names that are going to tend to fare better uh, vis-a-vis discount retailers and things of that nature. We're seeing big pops in the after hours on RH um, as well as Williams-Sonoma, Tim. That's interesting. Uh, Williams-Sonoma reports tomorrow after the bell. I'm fascinated by RH and Williams-Sonoma here. RH is is down over 50% from 52-week highs. Um, Williams-Sonoma on estimated PEs for next year is is six and a half to seven. Um, Hardly expensive, but when I and I, you know, I'll argue the same point that I think their consumer is in is in much better shape. Um, but I, I think they're one or two quarters out from a disaster. Uh, and I've liked this company for a long time. But when you look at the pull forward on demand, uh, you look at where at some point you've also gotten uh, a consumer that is going to run into, uh, I think, some headwinds on inflation and whatnot here. I, you know, these are companies whose guidance to me is very interesting. And we've seen them underperform for months um, and their multiples look interesting. But right now, I think you have to wait. At what point do we get concerned about the higher income consumer. I mean, we've heard from a lot of the luxury stocks and they actually were pretty decent, Dan. But um, from what we're hearing for toll, there has been some impact. I mean, the market in terms of it being down and the wealth effects being yeah. negative now. Well, I, I just look at American Express I and mean, we've been talking about, you know, look, look at the move. This stock was making like new all time highs just a few months ago where it looked like it was threatening those. And it's come in 20 percent in a straight line. And I think that that's a company that put up a really good quarter. When you think about the luxury market, you think about parts of Europe that are going to be affected, parts of China that are affected. Um, you know, to me, I just think that this is a really tough environment. And I think we're starting to see things kind of stack up little by little. I think, again, Every time we get to hear a company speak on the back end of this earnings period, you know, where we thought we were kind of out of the woods in mid to late April, and now we're hearing bits and pieces, this is kind of like, it feels like it's like a slow-moving train wreck a but little bit. the Fed bit has to be targeting the housing sector. And, and yeah. again, I, we, I, we have an asset bubble in housing. I don't care what you say. It's, yeah. not, it's not yoga teachers, with all due respect, flipping houses. It, it's, it's actually, you know, there's, there's, there's been institutional investment in housing. When rates are at zero, people can buy yeah. more home. By the way, they're even Doesn't less affordable. Does it make it harder, though, for the Fed? Uh, that's true. I don't yeah, know what I'm doing. But I appreciate your raising. For the Fed to slow down the housing market if there is that institutional backing. 
I think it's harder. Um, and I think ultimately you're going to let the market's going to have to decide for itself. But I think people will have to step away. You buy much less house uh, at yeah. a six percent mortgage. Definitely. Uh, meantime, stocks closing off their worst levels of the day. The Dow managing to finish with gains after falling as much as 515 points at its lows. But the tech heavy Nasdaq tumbling more than two percent. The benchmark 10 year yield falling to its lowest level in over a month. Let's get more with Julian Emanuel, uh, who leads strategy for Evercore ISI. Julian, great to have you with us. You know, I was reading through the notes and it sounded pretty gloomy. And then I get to your target, which is 4,800 on the S&P 500. And I, I couldn't figure out what kind of path you saw to 4,800 if things near term at least look so dire. So basically, look, we have to acknowledge that, you know, Friday you hit the bear market level down 20. And the question now becomes whether this is a non-recession bear market, uh, and we do see a growth slowdown, but not a recession, importantly, or a recessionary bear market. The difference really means everything. Um, and from where we stand, the path to higher prices really is a function of being able to discount the macro news and focus on the fact that you're still going to have mid to high single digit earnings growth. And that what you've really had is a valuation compression aided and abetted and really catalyzed uh, by a rise in bond yields, which by all rights is either cooling or has ended. May I may I interrupt you, Julian? Um, it, something just didn't strike me the right way when you said let's ignore the macro environment and believe that earnings will be this percent. I mean, doesn't one depend on the other? Doesn't earnings depend on the macro environment? Isn't that what we saw with Walmart? Isn't that what we saw well, with Snap? So, so to and and there's no question about that. But when you look at some of the the components that really point out stresses in the system, they are not there. Credit is a very important one. We've gotten, you know, if you look at the credit markets, they have been a harbinger of recession time and again over the last twenty years. And you got commentary yesterday from the head of the world's uh, most important bank saying the credit markets were healthy. Uh, the consumer obviously is stressed. There's definitely pockets. We're seeing it today in some of these reports that the stress is not necessarily as pervasive as perhaps we thought. And again, you know, to be clear, looking for 1.4% GDP growth in 2022 is very different than looking for a recession. And in terms of the market, really is an extremely material difference. Julian, 4,800, obviously a big jump from where we are now. And I think you would submit maybe we have a little more on the downside. But I'll ask you this. What sectors are going to get us there? Because obviously in doing your work, you have to target certain areas that are going to provide the strength. Right. So so the first thing, and when thinking about the last month, what we overlooked was the public's desire to sell stocks. Uh, our view was it was likely a tax-driven event. But frankly, the, the last month has been much more uh, of the public selling because essentially uh, growth stocks are where the public is overexposed. In our view, this is likely to be, and you saw it on a day like today as some of the indices recovered, a value-led market. Financials, industrials, particularly healthcare, very defensive, um, you know, really insensitive to both yields moving around and geopolitics. But we do think that the shift from growth to value is something that's ongoing. But there again, the bull case rests on essentially a drying up of the public selling of these stocks, which we do think when they figure out or 
you know, the, the circumstances uh, show themselves that the employment situation remains strong and that inflation, in our view, is peaking perhaps later this summer. We think actually the, the physical peak uh, did occur. But when things turn down, uh, that will be a, a more benign environment for the equity markets. Julian, always great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Julian Emanuel, Evercore ISI. Um, you saw his favorite sectors. Healthcare is number one. He would recommend deploying cash into healthcare. Neutral, though, on energy. Tim, do you like these sector allocations? How can you not? I, I do think that healthcare will continue. Also, you know, the political uh, theater around the healthcare and the pharma sectors at times has been much more intense. And maybe that's something we should be worried about as we get into uh, elections. But I, I think uh, energy. I'm going to keep saying it. It, it. The weighting in the S&P was 16 percent at the peak in 2008. Uh, we've already seen it effectively double since the end of the year. Uh, I just want to say one thing about credit, too, because I, I think we're smart to be bringing it up. Maybe we're being a little bit overly doomsday on this. But I, when I look at the Bank of America OAS high yield spreads, the mm-hmm. spread of what you're willing to pay over commensurate treasuries and high yield, we're at 5 percent right now. We were at 3 percent uh, a little while ago. What was the last period we had in markets outside of the pandemic? that we all thought was a very stressful credit time. It was the fourth quarter of 2018, uh, and they got to a high of 530. We're almost right there. And at that time, we were acknowledging we have credit issues. I think you have to pay attention. And this is happening just in a span of a few weeks, right? I mean, that jump. Uh, Bono, what do you you make of Julian's 4800 call? Uh, I have a hard time getting behind it. I, I can understand the logic there. So diplomatic, Bono, and I feel like you want, really wanted to say something else. But uh, well, let's not mouth. put words in my mouth. You know, I think there's, you know, we're going to take the take the high road here. I think um, I can follow his logic in terms of getting there, and, and his sector allocation makes a lot of sense to me. But I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around how if we're going to see compression in growth, and that's where you t- tend to see the earnings growth. How are we going to make that up in terms of lower beta, lower growth subsectors? That's where I think, you know, I have a hard time reconciling the price target. Um, 4,800, I, I think, is a bit high. I do expect to see continued outperformance in both healthcare and energy, though. Yeah, so I guess the real question is, like, and again, you guys are talking about buying things for trades. Guy just mentioned something like that. There's going to be some great trading opportunities. There already have been a lot of great trading opportunities. Oh, yeah. and we also recognize the fact that a lot of our viewers, a lot of retail investors should not be shorting stocks. It's just not a great sort of thing. We talk about the options. You get a great show Friday, 530s. There's opportunities to find your risk and make short bets or hedge against long positions or do that sort of thing. So I guess the point is, is like, when do you want to buy for those bounces? We've had two 10% bounces or so this year off of lows. Julian's going to be right that we're going to have a very violent rally at some point. It could come from lower. It could end up at 4,600. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like throwing stuff up against the wall to see what that actual number is. But to these guys' point, the valuation We've had the price come down. We haven't had the E come down yet. And when the E comes down, that's when you're going to start thinking about what's the proper valuation, right, for this market. What's the proper multiple you're willing to pay? And I think the next rally that we top out in before we have 2022 estimates really come down to, let's say, mid to low single digits year over year growth. Um, I don't think it's going to be 4,800 where we bounce to. All right. Coming up, chip check. NVIDIA results on tap tomorrow after the bell. So we're diving into the options pit to see how they are playing the name. That action is next. And we're watching. Watching Nordstrom after hours, the stock is jumping after reporting earnings. We'll bring you the numbers when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. 
Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. News alert here on Wendy surging in the after hours on potential interest from a hedge fund. Kate Rogers got the latest on why. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, those shares up over 16 percent after a try-in 13G filing showed that the firm run by Nelson Peltz is exploring a potential transaction for Wendy's. Now, in this filing, try-in says this could include an acquisition, business combination like a merger, tender offer or consolidation or other transaction that would result in the acquisition of control of the company by try-in or its affiliates. The firm does own a nearly 20 percent stake in Wendy's. It's its largest shareholder. So once again, they're exploring the possibility of some type of a transaction with Wendy's having discussions with the board. And as you can see, the stock up by more than 16% now. Back over to you. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers. Uh, Guy, what do you make of this news? Look, smart thing to do is sit back and watch. The aggressive thing to do is go back and look. April 2020, this was a $16 stock. And then look what subsequently happened over the next couple months. And anytime Nelson Peltz gets involved, uh, 19.4% stake, I think to be exact, Good things typically happen. It might take a while, but if you want to take a flyer here against this recent low of 16, I'm all for it because, you know, when Nelson Peltz puts his might behind something, it typically works out. Again, Wendy's has traded awfully over the last couple months, but when he's involved, good things typically happen. All right. Let's check out NVIDIA getting caught up in today's tech sell-off. The chipmakers on deck to report earnings tomorrow after the bell. And option traders are very divided over where the stock might end up when the results cross the wire. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, this is a name that has moved an average of 4% over the last eight reported quarters. But right now, the options market is implying a move of over 10% by the end of this week after they report earnings. And we saw some big trades in both directions. On the bearish side, one of the larger trades I saw was a purchase of 1,500 of the June 150-130 put spreads. They were spending about $5 for that. For that trade to be profitable, NVIDIA would need to decline at least 10%. And obviously, that 130 level, not one that we've seen in quite a while. And meanwhile, on the bullish side, we saw some June 3rd weekly 180 calls. Those were trading for about $3. That would need a move of well over 13% to the upside for those to be profitable. Either way, it seems that options traders are both divided on the direction, but not on the magnitude of the move. Mike, thank you. Mike Coe, for more options action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, Nordstrom on the move after reporting results. Shares are jumping. We are digging into the numbers next. Plus, Mackenzie Scott writing another huge check for charity, this time for a youth mentoring organization. The group's CEO will join us in just a few to detail how they plan to use the money. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Nordstrom. Mixed quarter for the luxury retailer. Revenues coming in much stronger than street expectations, but posting a slightly larger loss than expected. Let's get to Courtney Reagan with the details. Court. Hi, Melissa. So like Walmart, Target, Best Buy, Abercrombie and others, to your point, Nordstrom did miss on the bottom line, but beat on sales and pretty handily. But unlike most others, Nordstrom upped its earnings outlook for the year well above consensus. Total sales grew 19%. Digital flat. Inventory slightly outpacing sales growth up 24%. But the company points out a quarter of that inventory change is actually a pull forward of anniversary sale merchandise. Now, sales of the department store and its website continue to outpace the off-price division up more than 23%. Though Nordstrom Rack and its digital net sales did grow more than 10%. That's a sequential improvement, but it's still below pre-pandemic levels. That area has been a concern for investors. Merchandise margins improved thanks to favorable pricing impacts and lower markdown rates. Apparel, shoes, and designer, those were the strongest categories year over year. As Nordstrom says, customers refreshed their wardrobes for occasions such as social events, travel, and return to office. Shares are up more than 11%. Back over to you, Melissa. So they don't see any kind of slowdown at all in the month of May, as we've heard from others. Nothing. Yeah, I mean, they and they said that things were looking pretty well. Things were trending up. They said that the New York City store actually was the strongest store year over year, which, of course, you might remember is pretty good news since they spent many, many years building it, billions of dollars, and opened it shortly before the pandemic set in. All right. Uh, Court, thanks. Courtney Reagan. Thanks. Uh, how much of this is a read through, uh, Tim, to retail versus the high end consumer? I think it's both. I, I think in the case of department stores, you have a chance to evaluate their move to digital, their better inventory management, loyalty programs, things that actually have been very beneficial to Macy's and Nordstrom's. Um, I think Macy's actually uh, has less of a high-end consumer. And I think Macy's has a greater digital sales growth. And I think Macy's is a lot cheaper. So uh, well, one of the things that I, I just, you know, I talked about this yesterday, I think the risk reward to the upside for Macy's, especially when you have a four and a half times multiple, they don't have a balance sheet issue. And you, you don't have to start adding up some of the parts on their real estate. You just talk about their core business with a bid possibly to their online business as we saw around Saks. That's something that at least at times has spurred the stock. I think it's a floor under the stock, uh, and I just think that you're not going to hear the same kind of noise out of these I guys. would think, though, the Macy's customer is more akin to a Walmart and or Target customer, maybe a blend of the two. Mm-hmm. So we haven't done this in a while. Mm. Right, here we go. Would you rather <laughs> Guy, Nordstrom, or Macy's? You know, given the fact that I think they also announced a half a billion dollar buyback on a, co- a company with a three and a half, I think, billion dollar market cap, I would rather JWN, just for Tim's point, I think there is now a floor under the stock. Not that it's some great bastion of value, but I just think that the stock might be buoyant here for a while. All right. Coming up. Another big donation from Mackenzie Scott. We will be joined by the CEO of youth mentoring organization she is supporting to find out what his goals are for the group. Don't go anywhere. We are back into. Welcome back to Fast Money. Mackenzie Scott announcing a $123 million donation to Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. That is the single largest individual donation in the 100-plus year history of the organization. Joining us now to discuss how this donation will be used is CEO Artis Stevens. Artis, um, the fastest-growing age group in your organization, 18 to 25-year-olds looking for mentorship. How will this donation be used? Yeah, we're going to use it to really support. We're the largest provider of workplace 
uh, youth mentoring in the country. And we're going to use it to help support kids to continue to find their career journeys, whether that's scholarships, internships, job placements. We know when we connect young people to mentors who they can see and understand and have that connection with, it helps them to really go on the track towards finding jobs, finding careers and finding their life journey. How has this mission changed at all because of the pandemic? I would imagine some of these folks, you know, they they didn't have any in-person work experience. And here they are going out in the workforce now. That's right. And and one of the big ways that we changed was just through the use of technology. Uh, and we found that to be not just uh, an enabler, but a way that we're able to support and help kids stay uh, tracked and connected with mentors, uh, school systems and partners. So it made us have to be more creative and be more collaborative to be very straightforward with you and working with community partners, working with parents, working with supporters and putting young people in the me- middle of our work. And that's what we do every single day with our corporate partners who really engage in mentorship with our young people. And we serve as a bridge to help them do that. Artists, I'm so proud of what you've done. You took over for Pam Iorio. Uh, Mackenzie Scott has said she's watched the organization now for a few years. I'm sure you've had conversations. What did she see to make this extraordinary donation? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that she saw was the idea that we have the opportunity, we have the scale. We got 230 uh, local Big Brothers, Big Sisters all across the country. We have the scale to make significant impact. We have the evidence-based programs for over a century. And then she saw the innovation. And this innovation of thinking about how do we connect what's going on in our country in terms of the economy, how uh, companies want to engage their employees uh, to have more diversity and more diverse populations and increase the talent pipeline. And finding an organization that can reach kids in those communities as well as reach kids at younger age and help them transition to a place where they can be successful. Our largest growing population of young people that we're serving is actually 18 to 25 young adults. And we want to continue to grow and make sure that's more robust. Financial literacy is a pillar of the program, Artists, which which I'm really happy about. I think that young people should learn, especially during tough times. That's the most important time to understand the power of your money. How is that um, change or challenge during this time where the dollar goes not as far as it used to just a couple months ago in terms of inflation? Yeah, well, well, what our, our, our kids are learning, and, and remember with a lot of our kids, because uh, many of them are first generation when they go to college. So in a lot of ways, sometimes they don't have the opportunity to get some of the types of engagements and connections that we all traditionally think about. So one of the things that we work on are some of the essentials and basics. How do you balance the checkbook, right? How do you think about the, the, the common things of opening up a savings account? How do you use credit cards? This is part of what mentorship does. It gives exposure to kids to be able to do that, to think about some of the things, the everyday things that we think about in terms of balance in our budget, uh, living a, a, a life that's around savings and understanding your investments. That's part of the mentorship journey, and we expose kids to that experience, but also keep their families connected yeah. to it as well. So it's a family uh, approach in terms of how we build our mentorship program. Artists, thank you. Thank you for all the work Big Brothers Big Sisters of America does. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, Dan, you've been part of this program. 
Yeah, so, I mean, it's it, it really an amazing program. I had the benefit of mentoring a young man who was, you know, 10 years old in a different spot as what artists just said. So it's an amazing program. Get involved, people. I know Guy's been involved, and I'm sure a lot of you guys uh, spend a lot of time mentoring younger people, too. And this age segment is so important. So you're getting people at a time in their lives where, you, first of all, they, they are excited to embrace the next challenge. But, but the educational tools, it's not just about money. It's about providing the resources yeah. to give people the ability to take that next step. And standing up a business, Sometimes it's not just about capital. Um, it's about entrepreneurship and learning that. But again, 18 to 25, you've got young people when they you can help them make a difference in the world. Yep. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package list and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.